Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good, 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 good. Uh, we'll start with our scripture reading this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. All righty. So if you're paying attention, you'll realize that that was not Mark. Okay. We are uh, taking a little break from Mark. Uh, we are going to do a series through the Ten Commandments. Okay. I'm going to take some time to explain to you why. Okay. I want you to ponder for a minute. Okay, this is a question I ponder a lot. So, as a pastor, one of my jobs is to prepare people to walk with the Lord, right? And a lot of times I think, okay, well, if somebody knows nothing, right? If they are green, they don't know anything, and they're new to walking with Christ, what are the things I should tell them to get them ready? And that's not a hy hypothetical question for me, because uh, what happens is when somebody get, is going to get baptized, we have a conversation and well, many conversations and talk about, well, what are the things that you need to know? What are the things that are of utmost importance so that you understand that when you're following Jesus, these are the things that he is expecting of you? Now, I'm not the first person to wonder that or to think that. Praise God. I needed some help. So when I thought about, well, where do you start? What do you focus on when you're trying to, to train somebody to follow God? I looked at the early church. And the early church focused on three things. It was the first catechism, if you will. Catechism, again, question and answer. There's some things that you would memorize. You also have to remember that the church, when they first began, the majority of people did not read, okay? So you couldn't be like, yo, here the Bible, go read it. Like, I can't, okay? That's, where, that's why they read a lot of it in the service, right? They're like, what can we hand people that they can memorize, that they can meditate on so that they would understand who Jesus is and what he wants from us. Are you ready for this? It's going to be really simple, okay? They, there's three things. The first one was the Ten Commandments. The second one was the Apostles' Creed. The third one was the Lord's Prayer. Those were the three things. Now, I'm sure they talked about a whole lot of other stuff, but they're like, these are the three things that you need to know. You need to understand what God wants you to do, this is the commandments. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, what does the shape of following him look like? What God wants you to do, you need to know who God is and what he has done for you, right? There needs to be a succinct way to say that. I don't know if you ever asked somebody, what is the gospel? And they go, oh, you know, <laughs> well, we need to have a succinct way of saying that. We understand in the creed, we, we understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God created us 
that Jesus Christ saves us and that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And then after you know what God wants from you and who he is and what he has done for you, the last thing you want to know is, well, how should I pray? How should I approach this God who is good and kind and has saved me? Now, this, this idea from the early church was renewed in the Reformation. Now, if you don't know about the Reformation, the Reformation is a thing that happened uh, in, in Europe. And basically, they saw some, some doctrinal issues that was going on with the Catholic Church at that time. They were, it was Jesus plus a lot of other stuff to get to heaven. And some guy said, no, wait, wait a second, wait a second. If we go back to the scripture, it's, it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus alone is what saves. And they themselves thought, okay, we're kind of retraining people to follow Jesus. What then do we need to tell them so that they can follow Jesus? This is a quote from Martin Luther. He says, although I am indeed an old doctor, not like a medical doctor, like a theology doctor. Although I'm indeed an old doctor, I never move from the childish doctrine of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. I still daily learn and pray them with my children. That's what he says. And so if, you, if you've walked through what it means to get baptized into the church, that is literally what we walk through. We walk through the Ten Commandments. What, what does God want from you? Yeah? What, what, is, what, is it, what is the shape of Christian life? What has Jesus done for you in, in his death and resurrection of the cross and, and what he does presently through the church? And listen, you were saved to have a relationship with God. So what, what is it that you ought to pray? Matter of fact, <clears throat> I go through, through these with my, my own children daily. We, we walk through these things because I want them to understand what does it mean to follow God? And so we do that really elementary thing. Like before we go to bed, I'm like, what are the Ten Commandments? And they fumble around. I'm like, let's say the Apostles' Creed together. And let's say the Lord's Prayer. Because I want them to hold on to what is central and true. I, I remember one time I was, when I was, I was praying, I was, I was like, Lord, how do, I, how do I guard people against false doctrine? There's a lot of stuff going around, a lot of, a lot of messages that claim to be from God but are, that are not. Now, a really simple answer was, well, you just get people to read the Bible. I don't know about you. That's hard to do. Let's just keep it 100. <laughs> we'll roll, hey, read the whole Bible real quick. Takes a minute. Well, the threat of false teaching is ever-present, so what do I do? And I was like, well, that's one of the reasons we started to say the creed, because I was like, well, let's keep the main thing the main thing. These are the main things. And I remember somebody came to me and they said, why do we say these things? And I said, because we're trying to keep the main thing the main thing. And I said, if somebody comes to you and starts preaching to you some doctrine, making a big deal about something that's not one of these things, that's not the main thing. And she went, oh, you mean when people are trying to tell me to give a lot of money to the church? And I'll be blessed because I, and I'll get all this money back. I said, yeah, that's not one of the main things, is it? We need to talk about the Father, how he created us, the Son, how he redeemed us, the Holy Spirit, how he saves us, cleanses us in the church right now. So today, we're going to be looking at this first commandment. It teaches us that God wants us to worship and honor him above anyone and anything else. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, would you please open up your scriptures that we might understand what you have to say to us. 
Lord, Lord, the, the scripture says that, that those who are Christians, that we were bought with a price and that our life is not our own and that we ought to live it for you. So, Lord, help us to know what that looks like. How could we live every moment, every day, every year for you? Would you give us the strength to see what you are saying and the resolve to follow you with our whole heart? In Jesus' name. All right, so like I said, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, right? And this is a quote from a, from a theologian. I would say his name, but y'all know who he is. No way. Uh, the, the Peter Lightheart. See? Okay, I don't know who he is either. The church has always taken the Ten Commandments with modifications as God's word for Christians. New Testament writers quote it. The church fathers appeal to them. The medieval theologians commented on it. Reformation catechisms and confessions teach it. Prayer books incorporated into worship, and church architects carved into walls. So for 2,000 years, it's been a big deal, yeah? It's been a thing that people look to over and over and over again. Ironically, I, you know, I came to walk with Christ when I was in high school. I didn't, I didn't, you would have asked me to commandments. I'm like, I don't murder. I know that one. But I wouldn't have known them. I wouldn't have known what they were. Now, here's the deal. Whenever you try to talk about something from the Old Testament, you always have to be aware of this. There's some today that will say the Old Testament commandments were, were for another time. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll say, say, look, Christian, don't you just pick and choose the ones you want to do? You don't obey all the laws, do you? Why do you pick and choose the ones that you do? You ever heard that? And then, and then they'll be like, well, well, I can pick and choose different ones. I don't want to follow that law there. I don't want to care about that one there. If you pick and choose... I'm a pick and choose too. Now, here's the deal. You need to understand that the laws that are applied in the New Testament from the Old Testament are not arbitrary. It's not that somebody was in the Old Testament like that one, not that one. That one, not that one. So I, I, can you put your thinking caps on for me? We've got to do some work theologically, okay? I want to explain to you what theologians have called the three divisions of the Old Testament law. I know, I know it's hard, but I want you to understand this so that when somebody's coming to you saying craziness, that you actually have something to say back. Okay? All right, so, so the Old Testament laws can be split into broadly three categories. One is civil laws. The second one is ceremonial laws. The third one is moral laws. Well, let's take it in turn. The civil laws are the laws that govern the nation of Israel as a nation. This included the punishments and the crimes. Now, here's the reality. Are you an Israelite? Do you live in ancient Israel? No, you do not. In fact, Jesus was explicit that his church would encompass multiple nations and all ethnicities. So the laws that are applied specifically to Israel as a nation are not applied because we don't live under the Israelite covenant. See, look, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Uh, an example of a civil law would have to do with um, boundaries. So in, in the Old Testament, they'd be like, hey, Y'all, that clan right there, let, uh, let's say the tribe of Dan, that's y'all area. And it gives like a little, like this sliver of land, that's y'all. That doesn't apply to you. You're not in the tribe of Dan. You don't live in Israel. Now, is that did I arbitrarily make that up? No, it makes sense. You, we don't live in that country. That is not for us. It's not like I just randomly picked it. No, if the, if the laws are talking about these civil laws that deal with the government, we don't live under the Old Testament Israelite law. In fact, Christians live in every type of nation. 
So, okay, that's one. The second one is the ceremonial laws. These are the ones that have to do with uh, the clean or unclean things or about sacrifices, uh, uh, about the temple and other practices. So these laws, these laws had to do, uh, they illustrate God's holiness and how to approach him. So let's, let's take one, for example. There's laws that, that are talking about the sacrifices. You know, if you sin, sacrifice this type of animal, this, that, or another. Well, in the New Testament, it talks about this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. In the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, listen, you can destroy that, that temple over there, but actually, I'm the temple. And you can strike me down, and then the temple will be built in three days, meaning I'll rise again from the dead. Or how about this? The, the, the Bible says that we don't need a priesthood. We don't need anybody to go represent us to God because Jesus does. And we can go directly to God through him. What does that mean? All of these, these complicated laws that are talking about approaching God is to illustrate God is holy and we are not. And you just can't waltz up in his presence. However, in Christ, he has taken all of our sin, all of our shame. And so those laws are pointing to something, but they are fulfilled in Christ. That's why we don't build, we don't, the Old Testament says that we have to go build a temple. Do we build a temple? No. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the temple. As a matter of fact, the people of God are the temple. They are fulfilled in Christ. Now, what about this, this moral law? The moral law reflects God's character and how we should act. And Jesus and the apostles affirmed the church still lives by that. Right? Paul didn't go around saying, I know it said you can't kill people in the Old Testament, but it's cool now. No. <laughs> or he doesn't say, I, I, I know that they said not to lie, but now it don't matter. No, no. No, these reflect God's character. They, they reflect the morality that he expects all his people to follow for all time. Okay? Let me, let me review. I know this is it's hard, but I want you to understand. I, I want you to read the scripture and not be confused. When you're reading the scripture and you're in the Old Testament and you're looking at the laws and you're like, huh? What is going on? You need to put on anything about, okay, there, there are three types of laws. There's one that have to do specifically with ancient Israel as a nation state. We do not live in ancient Israel as a nation state. Those, those don't apply. You can be, think about the ones that apply to the temple and the priesthood and this clean and unclean thing. I think all of those have been fulfilled in Jesus. I don't approach God through, through these rituals. I approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. However, when there are laws that deal with morality, with right and wrong. Jesus affirms that they don't change. Matter of fact, he intensifies them. So if you look at this Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he's giving a commentary on the Ten Commandments, right? And he says, you have heard it say don't murder. You can do what you want now. Is that what he said? No, 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 no. It don't matter. No. He, you have heard it say don't murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you murder. So, so Jesus didn't look at the Old Testament moral law and say, Meh. And said, no, 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 this still applies. Okay? I, I, know, I, I, want, I know it's kind of difficult, but we, we don't get there, okay? Now, Jesus helps us to understand the Ten Commandments. See, the, the, the moral demands of the law are summarized by Christ. When, Christ when, Jesus, when they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. There's some that could take that to mean, well, that means that none of the commandments matter as long as we follow that one. That, some could think that, but, but I want you to understand, 
He's not trying to abrogate gate or supersede the law. He is summarizing it. He is summarizing it. See, listen, if you, if, if you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you can kind of split them in two parts. The first part has to do with you and God. And Jesus says, listen, the first part of God's command is you're supposed to love God. Well, what does that look like? How is that walked out in everyday life? And then the second part of the Ten Commandments, they're about how we should interact with others. Yeah? So God says, love your neighbor. What does that look like? That is how he's, what he's spelling out on the second half of the Ten So theologians look at the Ten Commandments, and they say there's, there's two tables, there's two tablets of the law, if you will. And that loving God is defined by the command related to God. So let me, let me give you an example. We'll talk, we're going to talk about each of these commandments in turn. But, but uh, the fourth commandment talks about remembering the Sabbath. That's, that's, we're going to explain that when we get there. But one of the things that is very clear is that, that God expects his people to gather together once a week to worship him. That's very clear. So it doesn't make sense to say I can be a Christian without gathering with God's people. Because that's what the Sabbath is about. You say, well, I love God. But what does that look like? It looks like, according to the fourth commandment, gathering with God's people to worship. You can't say, I love God, but expect to love him any kind of way you want to love him. He actually spells out what that looks like. Or, for example, so, so what, loving your neighbor is defined by the commands related to others. So, so you can't say you, you love your, your neighbor and then tell people to ignore what the scriptures teach about sex. That, that's not love, because there is a commandment that is, deals explicitly with that. Yeah? Or, or, or you, you, can't, you can't say you're a Christian and not care about people's, people's economic status and theft. You can't say, well, I'm loving them like, that way. No, because it is spelled out what that looks like. Okay? So when we get back to, to Exodus 20, when God begins to give the Ten Commandments, he gives them some reasons that they should listen to him. There's some reasons. The number one reason, he says, I am the Lord your God. Now, this refers to his personal name, this, that, that word Yahweh, if you've heard it. It's I am that I am. Like, we don't serve a generic God, but we serve a God with specific attributes. And when we look at who he is, it only makes sense that we ought to listen to what he says. Okay? So, so, so one catechism says, when it asks the question, what is God? It says this, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. In other words, God is our creator, God is holy, God is sovereign. The Bible's teaching about creation is this, is that, that God didn't create because he was needy. The Bible says that, that the, our God is a triune God. There's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that there was this love that they had from eternity, and they were completely self-sufficient. But, but this love was so intense that it overflowed in creation. He didn't create because he needed. He created because he wanted to share the love that existed with him for all eternity. So God, in his overabundant love, created all things and created you, people, in his image to demonstrate his love and his kindness. Our creator has our best interests in mind. Now, 
if you've ever tried to put together a piece of furniture, there's two ways you can go about doing it. Right? You can go and try to figure it out yourself. I've done that. It don't work too very well. Or you could just read the directions. Now, the, 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 the people who created the thing know how it should operate, yes? The people who made the thing know what, fit, what, what fits together and, and how you're supposed to use it. Listen, God, our creator, knows everything about us. He created us not because he needed slaves or he had something, some existential need he needed to be loved. No, he was completely self-satisfied. He had everything that he needed, but he says, I want people to love me. And I know what's best for you because I created you. Yes? So he's the creator. Then, then he's holy. And what holy means is, is absolute moral perfection. Every, every, every moral good that we know of, we see it on a scale. Right? What, let me explain what I mean. You can say someone is good. Now, good as compared to what? Yeah? That, you know, he's kind of good. He's better. He's kind of good. But, but when you think about God and this idea of God being good, it is absolute perfection with no defects. Or you can think about somebody being wise. That dude's pretty smart. She knows what's up. Now, there's going to be some gaps in their knowledge, though, because nobody knows everything except God. And when you think about his wisdom, you think about wisdom in absolute moral perfection, knowing everything, knowing exactly what to do in every single situation. And a lot of times when I think about the attributes or the characteristics of God, I, I like to think about a, a, a diamond. When you look at a diamond, you can kind of turn it around. and you, It's one thing, but as you turn it around and you look, you see different angles of the diamond. You see different aspects, different beauties of that diamond. And as we're looking at the diamond of the character of God, we see these attributes that work together. We can see that he is both loving and just. See, see in, 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 our, in our experience, sometimes to be loving and to be just is to be in opposition. Will you be loving so you look over that thing? Or you be just, you have to, do the, 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 you have to follow the rules so, so, so you, you can't show your love. But in God, those perfections, those attributes exist in absolute harmony. Yeah? Or we can think that God is, is, is all-knowing and wise and that he is powerful. Listen, you, there's some people who are wise, but they ain't got no power to do nothing. And there's some people who are powerful, but they're dumb. But you look at God and you see absolute moral perfection and wisdom and the absolute ability to accomplish the wisdom that he possesses. God is holy, meaning that he is in a category of his own. So we have a God who is the creator, the God who is absolute moral perfection and a category of his own. And then we have a God who is sovereign, that, that nothing happens outside of his decree and permission. Absolutely nothing. You know, when, when this is a little nerdy, but the origin of modern science, the enlightenment, if you will, the origin of modern science had to do with this idea. If God created things to be stable, I can do an experiment and trust that the, the, the laws are the same because God is the same. 
the, the establishment of science is that, that, that when I go do an experiment, that it's not going to be random all the time, but, but there is a creator who created things to be stable. And because he is stable and fixed, the laws of nature are stable and fixed. Therefore, I, I can observe them, and it's not arbitrary what I see. That, that, that he has set in motion and, and keeps the world working together so that we can observe it, and it doesn't change. We can look at molecules and go, oh, that's how that works. Because God holds them together. This absolute sovereign God, he upholds the laws of nature and also does miracles. Yeah? He made the laws. He made the principles. He can step outside of them if he wants to. He can raise the dead and heal the sick. So, so, so why should we obey God? Because he is the creator. Because he is holy. Because he is sovereign. And then in Exodus, he continues and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. In other words, we ought to obey and love God because of what he has done. He's like, look at what I did for you. Look, God redeemed Israel out of slavery. Like they were in bondage to Egypt. And God delivered uh, Israel by the blood of a, of a lamb and his awesome power. Miracle after miracle, God is, is delivering Israel, taking them from the land of bondage through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, all the way to the promised land, showing his power and the fact that he loves them and forgives them over and over and over again. Now, you and I don't have that experience. We're not ancient Israel, but Jesus Christ has redeemed us from sin with his blood. The Bible says that we were enslaved to sin and Satan. If you're curious about that, just go to somebody and say, don't sin today. And then at the end of the day, just ask them how it went. <laughs> then, then, then you'll know if they're a liar or not. Okay, like, the, the idea is this, like, we're, we're enslaved to it. As a matter of fact, we are enslaved to Satan because we experience this condemnation, this shame, and this guilt. The Bible calls him the accuser. And the reality is he accuses us and we're guilty. We are enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan. But Ephesians 1.7 says, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1.18, it says, for you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. One of the interesting things about God, and again, I know this is a really heady sermon, but I want you to understand it. God loves you so much that he is willing to bleed and die for you. But here's the dilemma. Before Jesus, God doesn't have a body, and God can't suffer, and he can't die. He is eternal, perfect, holy, above everything else. God decides to put on flesh so that he can die for you. So that his blood, his precious blood, could be shed for you. And he sets you free from the condemnation of sin and Satan. And he lavishes grace and forgiveness on you. Why should we obey him? Well, look at who he is. 
and look at what he's done, has redeemed us with his own precious blood. The reason he had to redeem us is because we, we failed. We failed to keep his commands. Romans 121, it says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. All of, all of sin is a failure to honor and show gratitude to God. In other words, it's breaking of the first commandment. Yeah? When, when we're jealous, we're saying, God, what you, have, what you have given me is not sufficient. Yeah? We, we, are, we are failing to appreciate who he is and what he has done. That's why, this is crazy, when David sins by murdering a guy and sleeping with his wife, there's a psalm that declares uh, what he said to God. And he says something that sounds crazy. He said, God against you and you alone have I sinned. I feel like Bathsheba and Uriah like, what's up? What it shows is that though his sins were against others, the root sin is that he did not glorify God and he was not thankful for what he had. And that spilled over into sins that harmed many people. So all of us, we failed to honor God, failed to show him gratitude. And that's why what Jesus has done is so meaningful. Listen, when Jesus explained the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was explaining something that he himself lived. He lived out the first commandment. He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's never a moment in Jesus' life where he failed to honor the Father, where he failed to, to, to show gratitude, well, where he failed to, 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 to not love him. Listen, Jesus always worshiped the Father. Matter of fact, Jesus said that he always imitated the Father. He said, he said I don't do anything that I don't see the Father do, and I don't say anything that I don't hear the Father saying. He imitated him perfectly. So much so that, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He worshiped God with his whole heart, and he always loved others. Yeah? When he's on the cross and people are cursing him, they're saying, get down if you say you are who you are. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. People hated him and cursed him. And what did he do? He, he would turn the other cheek. People would accuse him, and they, he wouldn't even answer them. He would be like, like a lamb led to slaughter. Listen, he loved God, and he loved people. And, 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 it's, and it's easy to tell when, when you love God and love people, because when stuff gets hard, that's what really comes out, right? When the pressure of life kind of slams down on you, that's when the real you comes out. And so when the pressure of the death when the pressure of the wrath of God, when the pressure of the accusations of Satan, when the pressure of, of the chief priests and the scribes, when that all came barreling down at Jesus, Jesus says to God, not my will, but yours. When the rubber met the road, Jesus Christ honored God with his last drop. 
Listen, we failed, but, but he succeeded in our place. He didn't just succeed for himself. He succeeded on your behalf. Yeah? You know, there, there's, there's sometimes when, when I have a, a child that's trying to reach something at, at the top shelf and they can't get it, right? And then oh, I, I happen to be a little tall, you know? So I walk over there and I get the thing that they're reaching and I hand it to them. I didn't want the thing. I didn't need the thing, but they needed it. I, I did what they couldn't do to serve them. We couldn't obey the law. We couldn't love God. We have not honored him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus goes, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to reach this goal for you. That, that is what Christ has done for us. He loved God to the point of dying on the cross as obedience to the Father. And his perfect obedience counts for us. First Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.2-1 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, our sin is on Christ. But beloved, when we come to Christ, his righteousness is on us. As if it were a robe, we get put on the perfect record of Christ so that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see this long record of wrong that we all have. He sees the record of loving obedience that Jesus has for us. So when you think about who he is and what he has done, then it is not, is it not appropriate to go, well, let me love you. Let me honor you when I think about what you've done for me. Now, I want to get down to, 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 to some, some application. In order to obey the first commandment, Jesus says, the first commandment is to love God. Yeah? You have no other gods beside him. How do you do that? By loving him with everything. Now, I don't know about you. I don't always feel that way. Do you? Do you always feel like you're loving God? Or you're like, I love everything, God. I love you. Right? You know, like you got some, we got other things competing for our affections all the time. Competing for our attention. All this competition for our heart. When our heart should belong to God. And the question is, is love for God something you just muster up? Can you just, rah? Right? If I were to come to you and look in the face and go, you love God more, would that work? No. <laughs> no. No. So it's not, so it leaves us in this dilemma. So God has commanded us something that we just can't, can't just make my emotions do a thing, right? So, so what is the solution? If I am to obey the first commandment and I look at my heart and I'm like, I don't know how to make that happen, what do I do? I remember I was, I was having a conversation with a guy years ago, and he was raised in, in somewhat of a legalistic environment, and he felt a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. I got, I got to do for God. I got to love God. I got to do my Christ. I got, and, it, and it wasn't like a joyful thing. He, it seemed like he, he was just kind of bare, like bare down. Like, oh, I just got to do this thing. And he was talking to me, and he literally said, like, how do I love God more? How do I do it? I don't know how to do it. How do I do it? And I read to him this prayer. In Ephesians 3, 
Paul prays in Ephesians 3, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now break it down. So if you were to ask the question, how can I be filled with the fullness of God? How can I be filled with, full of God? How can I be full of love for God? What do I need to do? Paul says, if you understand the love of Christ. And he's not just talking about here, right? If you understand the love of Christ, then that love for God will start swelling up in you. So ironically, the way to love God more is actually not to look at yourself and say, self, love God more. The way to love God more is saying, God, help me to see how much you love me. Lord, if you help me to see how much you love me, then the automatic response of my heart will go, oh my goodness. Love isn't, isn't something that's forced out. It comes out because you can experience this love. Listen, that is my prayer for all of us. Not just that you will be able to explain it with your words, but that you would be able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. And I know Paul wasn't talking about intellectual knowledge because he says to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. That's what he said. He's not talking about here. He's talking about to experience the depth of Christ's love to you. And as you experience that, the Spirit of God works affection and love in your heart. Why, why do we talk about the gospel? Why do we talk about forgiveness? Why do we talk about the love of God? Because I want you to love God, and you won't love God just by me telling you to love God. But, beloved, you will love God as you perceive more and more and more how much he loves you. And there's no end to it. He said there's no height, there's no length, there's no depth. So there's never a point where you can look back and go, I understood it all. No, for eternity, you will get to, to understand at a deeper level all the time, more and more, how much God loves you. And I want you to understand, not just y'all, but you particular. God loves you. He has your name on his heart. You know, there um, in the Old Testament, the high priest, when he would go and he would intercede for the people, he'd have on his heart the names of the tribes of Israel on his heart. And he'd go into God's presence with the people of God on his heart. Beloved, Jesus Christ is in the Father's presence right now. And your name is on his heart. He is bringing you before the Father. I pray that you feel that. In Jude, very short letter. He says this. He says, but you, dear friends, are to build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's crazy. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. What is, what is he saying there? He's not saying make God love you more. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, keep yourselves in the awareness of God's love for you. Yeah? Keep yourself in the awareness of God's love for you. How do you do that? He said, pray. <laughs> Believe what he says and be with him. 
Believe that when he says, I love you, believe it and thank him. Be believe that he died for your sins. Believe that right now Jesus Christ intercedes for you. Believe that there is an inheritance for you in heaven that nothing can take away from you because God loves you. That there is nothing on heaven on earth or in hell that can separate you from the love of God. That if you would believe that, that's how you keep yourself the love of God. Because as we see God clearly and know his love, love for him is birthed in our hearts. And so I want, I want to kind of reframe what spiritual disciplines are. When you think about praying and scripture and going to church, you can look at them as things you ought to do to check a box. Or you can say, this is an opportunity for me to be reminded again how much God loves me. This is an opportunity. When I come to the Lord, I don't have to come having to muster something up. I come empty. And I say, I'm here. I'm broken. I'm sinful. And the Lord says, I love you. I forgive you. You are my beloved. These opportunities to be with God are not meant to be to-do lists that you check up, check off. They are meant to be opportunities where the Spirit of God pours the love of God in your heart. Because the reality is we are so quick to forget what God loves us. We do two, three, four sins, and we up there going, oh, man, you don't like me no more. But beloved, that's why we say, no, no, no. No, no, he forgives you. He loves you. And nothing can separate you. Yeah? So if we want to be a, a people that obey the first commandment, ironically, we obey the first commandment indirectly. We put the love of God in front of our eyes and we don't look away. And the Spirit of God produces love and affection for God and our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for who you are. You are the, the holy, incredible, marvelous, righteous, wise, powerful God. And Lord, you love us with an undying, never giving up a love that chases and pursues us. Lord, would you, would you let us get caught by your love? Would you help us to believe what your word says about who you are and how you feel towards us? And Lord, would, would you, by the Spirit, would you give us more love for you? We can't love you in our own but, Lord, you can help us to love you wherever our heart, soul, mind, and strength is. Lord, help us be a people that keep your love before our eyes so that we can love you in a way 